0: On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria.
1: There's power in Satan. One more time. There's power in Satan parents were actually saw their child summon uh, Dungeons and Dragons demons into his room before he killed himself. Another scripture says that if you bring an abomination or an accursed thing into your house, then you will be accursed like it is. Would you say these toys are accursed to God? Oh, I would guarantee it.
0: The original Hebrew translation of the word Satan refers to an adversary, or more directly, one who throws something across one's path. In the Bible, the word Satan can certainly refer to the Satan, the actual character of the devil himself, but just as often also refers to a Satan, to whatever challenges you as you move through your life's journey. The entity of Satan, often seen as the fallen angel Lucifer, one who rejected the authority of God, has long been the symbol of the world's ultimate evil, the evil beyond humanity itself, the pain, the suffering, the death, and depravity, all made into a convenient villain that we can experience together. The satanic panic of the 1980s and early 90s is truly one of the most mystifying things I've ever studied. A serious and widespread belief was burning through the country, and not just among fundamentalists, That a secret network of satanic cults was indoctrinating kids and teens through music, movies, and games, hypnotizing them toward drug-fueled sex orgies and suicide, toward atrocious violent crimes, including ritual murder in the name of their dark lord. For part one of this two-part series, I'll cover the rise of organized Satanism, beginning in the late 60s, which has mainly existed as a creative way to provoke those who believe without room for doubt, without humor, and sometimes with hate and intolerance. I'll also track the effect of the adversarial countercultures of the hippies and the metalheads and their apparent satanic crimes that would be hailed as proof of their evil, as well as proof that kids and teens were in serious moral peril. For part two, I'll cover what came next, a serious investigation into an imagined network of satanic cults operating in daycare centers all over the country. I'll try to understand this shocking decade in history, why it happened, and the cultural issues it was really about. As we'll see, the devil was everywhere in the 1980s, controlling everyone, most frighteningly, the young and impressionable, the wayward teenagers, the unsuspecting, unsupervised children. He was hypnotizing them with secret messages and backwards rock songs, teaching them occult magic in episodes of My Little Pony, and seducing them toward suicide through role-playing games believed to emit tiny screams when burned in a fireplace, all while helping religion blur into politics for good.
1: What is the story that you'd like to tell us? The story is that I think... the devil has been the guy that's kept the church in business for many many years without him and the concept of evil where would the church be are you planning on training a lot of little devils (laughs) only those that wish to become little devils you have any little devils oh yes i have two are you going to raise them as satanic kids certainly but not to go around chopping people up or sacrificing human beings just to uh, that would be the greatest reward of all if your kid some night would creep in and set fire to you and your lion. (laughs) Well, no, no. And then dance around with pitchforks and say, look at daddy, look at daddy, huh?
0: That was Anton LaVey on Joe Pine's confrontational talk show in 1970. He was like the cartoon Satan of the love generation, the man who realized a new way he could capitalize on the counterculture's anti-establishment rebellion, as well as play to long-held anxieties of spiritual evil. He wore Halloween devil horns, waxed his head shiny bald above a vampiric goatee and a black pentagram necklace. He was photographed often with a large snake around his neck. And his home, which appeared in the tabloids often, was filled with animal skulls, velvet, black candles, and of course, pentagrams, pentagrams, pentagrams. He founded the Church of Satan in 1966, using his recently published book, The Satanic Bible, as its foundational text. He used a maxim created by famous British occultist Alistair Crowley, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, basically do whatever you want and live for yourself. Levain's Satanism combined ideas of Nietzsche and Ayn Rand about individualism and selfishness, but it wasn't really about Satan at all, as members of the church don't really believe he exists. They mainly believe in science and rationality. It was about what that character represented. The character of the fallen angel of Lucifer, the challenger, held the virtues of free thinking, rejection of authority, self-indulgence, an acceptance of an animal nature and of carnal desires. LeVay hosted parties full of drugs and sex, with strippers dressed as witches and vampires, weird novelty experiences that young Hollywood flocked toward, Megastar Jane Mansfield had a very public friendship with LeVay. Sammy Davis Jr. joined the church publicly in 1968. Documentary crews filmed a satanic wedding with a naked woman lying on an altar. LeVay walked his pet lion through the streets of San Francisco. The tabloids couldn't get enough, and neither could those that LeVay had set out to piss off in the first place. Religious convictions began to strengthen as the free-love anti-war counterculture rose up on both coasts. And with the official coming-out party of the Satanic Church, fundamentalism had its own, on-the-books adversary. And as the summer of love approached, they got their proof that Satan himself had in fact drilled up through American soil and hitchhiked straight to Hate ashbury to commune with who else but those fatally wayward hippies.
1: In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Poljanski.
0: Often considered the death knell of the love generation, Charles Manson and his band of flower-crowned spree murderers seemed to prove what American parents already believed. The hippies, with their free love and drug use, Their strange, ungodly philosophies were actually in league with something much darker. Assumptions that the Manson family were a satanic cult were presented early on, and then prosecuting attorney Vincent Bugliosi spun a whopper of a story about cultic mind control, the race war Manson wanted to invoke with ritual murders, and the hidden messages he believed to be in Beatles' songs. The feeling began permeating the country that Satanist cult leaders like Charles Manson were more common than could be imagined and that these bearded pied pipers were leading teenage girls and boys out of their hometowns onto sex and drug fueled communes and into unspeakable occult criminal activity. Just a year before the Manson murders, Rosemary's Baby had been released, a horror film about a young woman's disturbing run-in with a cult of devil worshippers run by her landlords who secretly impregnate her with the child of Satan. It was directed by Roman Polanski, who at the time was married to actress Sharon Tate, the most famous victim of the Manson family who was stabbed brutally while pregnant with Polanski's baby that very next year. The story was an eerie coincidence that some believed was not a coincidence at all, but some kind of proof of the dangers of occult filmmaking. Four years later, The Exorcist, a film about the demonic possession of a young girl and a priest's attempt at helping her and her family, terrified America, producing true fits of fainting and vomiting.
2: I fainted like 10 minutes after the first beginning of the movie.
0: I passed out in in about the first half hour, yeah. Oh, God, I can't believe it. I'm just nervous. Famous scenes include the young girl puking violently, her head turning all the way around, and, of course, most shocking of all to delicate sensibilities, violently masturbating with a cross while spitting out graphic blasphemies. Rumors soon spread about the film's very own demonic curse. During a screening in Rome, a storm surged around the theater as the audience filed inside, Shortly after, a giant 400-year-old cross on top of a nearby church was struck by lightning, causing it to fall dramatically into the plaza below. An extra in the film, Paul Bateson, would go on to become a serial killer, murdering six men. Mysterious deaths seemed associated with the cast. Objects would move on their own, phones would fall off the hook. Late in the filming, The Exorcist hired a real exorcist to cleanse the studio. All these unexplained events led credence to the idea that satanic films could actually hold real satanic power. The supernatural seemed to be showing itself in a pop culture that had rejected traditional values, and the growing superstitions of a nervous nation allowed fertile ground for religious hucksters to make some serious money.
1: I got saved in 1966. I have a three-inch scar on my wrist where my friends used to cut my arm and bleed my blood into a cup and mix it with wine and urine and drink it for communion to Satan. I was involved as deeply as you can get.
0: 70s Christian comedian Mike Warnke looked a little more flamboyantly rock and roll than his Christian contemporaries, sporting a single dangly earring and long curly hair. After sharing his testimony on stage, he published his memoir, The Satan Seller, in 1973, in which he goes from orphaned teenage drug addict to satanic high priest to evangelical convert. This book has it all. Child sacrifices, orgies, kidnapping, ritual murder, and magic spells. He even dedicates a few pages to the fourth level of working professional Satanists. That's right, the Illuminati. Thanks, Mike. And with that, the idea that there was a secret network of underground Satanists became a best-selling Christian sensation, and Mike, the trusted authority. So, if this book is indeed the truth, Mike Wernke publicly admitted to assisting in several murders, kidnappings, drug trafficking, and brutal sexual assaults, including one where he commands his friends to kidnap a woman and then stomp on her hands until she agrees to have sex with the members of his coven. But of course, at the end of the book, he is born again and through the Holy Spirit is forgiven for all his crimes. The woman I just mentioned, well, she runs up to Mike in the street to tell him how much she loves him and forgives him because she herself has been born again. Mike then goes on to marry his childhood sweetheart, Sue, but then tries to strangle her to death in the night, and in one dramatic scene, Sue finally casts away the demons forever. All is forgiven with no legal ramifications, no rehabs, no therapy, no discernible change except for, of course, the Holy Spirit. Then the couple, wholly healed and hella holy and ready to influence the masses, start their own popular ministry to spread these very socially responsible and emotionally healthy messages. The Satan seller was not fully debunked until 1991, when it was revealed through an expose in the Christian magazine Cornerstone that Mike's family and friends stated on record that during the time of the alleged satanic cult activity, Mike was a clean-cut young Christian, one who only hung out with other Christian students. At the time, he claimed to have bleach blonde hair and six-inch black fingernails. At the time, he was allegedly drinking blood and eating pinky fingers. He was actually spending his time bowling, playing croquet, and eating ice cream sundaes down at the local soda fountain. But before the official debunking, Mike would appear as an expert not only on fundamentalist programs, but also on the most mainstream TV talk shows that existed, including Oprah, Larry King, and 2020, which all treated his outrageous story as indisputable fact. His ministry was forced to close its doors only 100 days after the expose came out, and it was found that he was taking an $800,000 salary while claiming the ministry desperately needed more donations. Mike still swears that much of what he wrote was the truth, and the effect the book had essentially made that so anyway, at least in the minds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, who connected the rock and roll image of Mike's past satanic self with a rising counterculture even scarier than the one that came before. In the early 1970s, rock and roll, which had long been associated with sexual deviancy, drugs, and the occult, leaned in hard into the rumors of their satanic ties. The heavy metal pioneers, Black Sabbath, began as a group called the Polka-Tolk Blues Band. But one day, as they were searching for a new name, they saw the title of a 1963 horror film on a movie theater's marquee. They chatted about how funny it was that people paid to see horror movies, that they paid to be scared, and that maybe they could bring horror into popular music. Guitarist Tony Iommi came to the other band members, including singer Ozzy Osbourne, with an unorthodox new idea to match their horror persona. Instead of the standard musical sequence used in blues music, he showed the group a different sequence, known throughout Catholic history as the Devil's Tritone, famous for the rumors of its banning by the church. It sounded dissonant, off, almost demonic, and it worked. The new counterculture, the new adversary, was even scarier than the hippies because they were bold and in your face about their allegiance to the Prince of Darkness. A movement was sparked, one covered in leather and giant hair, tattoos and chains, tight pants and inverted crosses, all built on creating an opposite, an adversary to the Christian majority. By the early 80s, fundamentalist preachers and televangelists all over the country were playing rock and heavy metal songs backwards, studying their strange sounds like righteous detectives. They focused, most famously, on Led Zeppelin's popular hit, Stairway to Heaven. A televangelist named Paul Crouch claimed that the secret satanic messages he could hear proved that the band was in cahoots with the devil and was subconsciously persuading young people to follow the path of the occult.
1: All right, we'll go on you, you'll hear here's to my sweet Satan and it, then you'll hear there's power in Satan. Well let's just let's just go on
0: Okay, I can hear it and it's pretty creepy and maybe that's why this conspiracy didn't just stay in evangelical and fundamentalist circles. In fact, the state legislator of California actually looked into the rumors just in case there might be some truth to them. Both sides of the political spectrum were on alert. Come 1985, Tipper Gore, wife of then-Democratic Senator Al Gore, and several other wives of senators, created the Parents' Music Resource Center and named their famous Filthy Fifteen, which included, among other acts like Madonna and Prince— Many of the famous heavy metal bands of the time, like Judas Priest, Motley Crue, ACDC, Venom, and Merciful Fate. The Parents Music Resource Center demanded content-based ratings for songs. X for profane or sexually explicit lyrics, D slash A for lyrics about drugs and alcohol, V for violent content, and O for occult references. Of course, these labels made parents feel a little more in control of their kids, but it only made teens covet the forbidden records even more. And alongside teenage misfits' love of heavy metal, there was another, possibly satanic, pastime rising in popularity for others that didn't quite fit in.
1: I know that when uh, I did my message, and this has happened, I have letter after letter where people took the pieces. Now, there's sixes involved in the pieces of the game, but they take the pieces of the game, they would throw them in the incinerator or the fireplace, and screams would come out because there seemed to be some kind of spiritual forces inhabiting those pieces.
0: Dungeons & Dragons was the first true tabletop role-playing game, allowing players to create their own fantasy personas and situations to go on different adventures based on the roll of a dice. It's like a never-ending choose-your-own-adventure in the form of a board game with the general goal of growing more powerful, but also of simply coming up with a good story. D&D's satanic ties first came under scrutiny in 1979 when 16-year-old computer science prodigy James Dallas Egbert III went missing from his Michigan State dorm room. When the police search fell short, his family hired private investigator William Deere. After studying James's suicide note and a corkboard of strange clues found in his dorm room, William Deere made the claim that James may have been attempting to play a real-life version of D&D in the steam tunnels under the school and was killed down there by accident. And James's parents accepted the theory publicly, which gave rise to new fundamentalist theories, the most popular being that D&D's Dungeon Master Guide contained instructions for carrying out a ritual sacrifice to Satan and that the bright young James had fallen prey. When he was found alive several weeks later, it turned out that James had indeed spent time in the steam tunnels under the school, but it had nothing to do with D&D. He had gone down there with the purpose of ending his life by overdosing on sleeping pills. When he awoke after 24 hours, disoriented but still alive, he hid out at an older man's house in New Orleans for the remainder of the month he was missing. Soon, William Deere would get to know the boy he had been searching for personally, as he worked on a book about the case, trying to dispel some of the satanic rumors he had accidentally started. It turned out that James had been suffering from serious depression and drug abuse, buckling under academic pressure from his parents, as well as serious loneliness. James was also very likely gay, and William Deere believed his parents cleaved so desperately to the D&D narrative so that they could avoid the topic of his sexuality being leaked to the media. And then two years later, another player, one named Irving Lee Pulling, shot himself in the chest. Understandably devastated and looking to find something to blame for the horrible tragedy, Irving's mother, Patricia Pulling, made the claim that Irving's principal cursed her son using D&D and that countless other teen suicides could be linked to the game. A devout Christian already aware of D&D's demonic reputation, Patricia found it bad, bothered about dungeons and dragons bad defined dnd this way a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology witchcraft voodoo murder rape blasphemy suicide assassination insanity sex perversion homosexuality prostitution satanic type rituals gambling barbarism cannibalism sadism desecration demon summoning necromantics divination and many other teachings Like televangelists, Patricia believed that this role-playing game was just a cover, and what D&D really contained were covert instructions for rituals in which susceptible teens would be hypnotized into out-of-control, sodomy-filled sex parties presided over by Satan himself. And if the devil could use a board game to possess teens, couldn't he do similar things to kids? That was the question on one man's mind, while deep into a 14-day fast that was requested directly by Jesus Christ himself, devout Christian Phil Phillips wandered aimlessly into an early 80s toy store and was struck by a frightening image, a plastic figurine holding an occult symbol in its hand. Pale-faced, he approached the register, purchased the toy, and then staggered out in what I can only imagine was a hunger-induced stupor, clutching the action figure in his clammy palm, unsure of why he had bought it. By his own account, he tossed the toy in his back seat and all but forgot about it, until God spoke to him a few days later, telling him about how the toy industry controls the youth with occult magic. This sparked Phil to undertake an intensive investigation into popular toys and the Saturday morning cartoons that were used to sell them, shows like He-Man and Thundercats, Care Bears and Rainbow Bright. Here's a mashup of Phil talking to Fundamentalist talk show host Gary Greenwald in 1984.
1: A little boy was seen out in the parking lot with He-Man in his hand, running around in circles saying, He-Man has more power than Jesus. The Care Bears use the Care Bear Stare, which is a power beam coming from the center of their stomach. What I'm seeing in Care Bears is almost like they're setting up their own religion. This is Tila. They call her the warrior goddess and this young lady is involved in witchcraft and you'll notice that she's a very voluptuous looking thing and they wear very tightly clad clothes and and sometimes even negligee Skeletor, the master of the universe but there are some things about smurfs that we need to look at you know what happens to you when you die you turn blue and your lips turn black Again, Rainbow Bright is a very humanistic type toy. It displays many humanistic and new age symbols within it. It's a half man, half horse. He had horns coming out the side of his head, who kidnapped uh, three of the ponies, and he's going to transform them to pull his chariot of darkness.
0: Just like with every panic we'll cover, there is a kernel of truth to these fears, some real examples of crimes that had at least some mention of Satan involved. New York serial killer David Berkowitz, known as the Son of Sam, committed a series of Lover's Lane murders in the 1970s, his confessed motive being that he was commanded to kill by his neighbor Sam's satanic dog. On the other coast, Night Stalker Richard Ramirez began terrorizing California in the mid-80s with crimes of breaking and entering, sexual sadism, and the extremely brutal murder of at least 13 people. Ramirez was a self-proclaimed Satanist, using pentagrams at the sites of his murders and forcing his victims to swear on Satan when he asked them questions. He even left an ACDC hat at one of the crime scenes, enough to mark the band forever after. When Ramirez entered the courtroom for the first day of his trial, he had a pentagram drawn on his palm, which he revealed to the jury as he yelled, Hail Satan. In addition, drifter serial killer Otis O'Toole, who is considered responsible for the murder of John Walsh's son Adam, who we talked about in our Stranger Danger episode, made claims that he had killed in the name of a widespread satanic cult called the Hands of Death that had contracted O'Toole and his best friend and fellow drifter serial killer Henry Lee Lucas to kill for them offering ten grand per murder. And then there was 17-year-old Ricky Casso, a troubled misfit with an interest in Satanism, who brutally murdered his friend Gary Lowers in the woods of Long Island in what police and the news reported was a satanic ritual crime. Ricky, Gary, and their three buddies were high on LSD or mescaline or both and had just lit a fire in the wet evening, using Gary's socks and denim shirt sleeves as kindling. At some point, the evening took a turn and Ricky freaked out, attacked Gary, bit him on the neck, and then stabbed him more than 30 times and sliced his eyeballs out. Ricky, known locally as the Acid King, had been kicked out by his parents in his early teens after several failed rehab attempts and psychiatric intakes. He started sleeping in the woods outside his family's suburb, taking copious amounts of drugs and reading Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. He was found digging up a colonial-era grave for unknown reasons and was arrested a year before the murder. In reality, Ricky had serious untreated mental illnesses and was taking a ton of psychoactive drugs. Police discovered that the murder was, surprise, surprise, not a satanic ritual, but a revenge killing for a stolen batch of PCP. Ricky Casso committed suicide in jail just 48 hours after his arrest, And in much the same way that the Manson family became the symbol for the hippie generation's downfall, he became the symbol for the heavy metal generation's final form, proof to fundamentalists that they were right all along. The photos of his arrest held the same manic energy as the photos of Manson did, and just to top it all off, he was wearing an ACDC shirt. These killers did not murder because of some kind of involvement in organized Satanism. It was just an easy stamp to mark on their crimes, an excuse for their ugly behavior, a narrative guaranteed to get a ton of attention from the media and maybe an insanity plea. The Son of Sam admitted through several interviews with his court-appointed psychiatrist that the demon story was nothing but a way to commit violent crime without taking personal responsibility. He felt the world had rejected him, and he wanted revenge, especially against women in general, who he believed did not pay him the attention he deserved. Criminologists believe that Richard Ramirez was simply a thrill killer who latched onto the symbolism of spiritual evil. He was likely a clinical narcissist, one who loved the attention a public trial afforded him, showing up in dark clothes and dark sunglasses, ready to prove to America that he was an enigma. Investigators also discovered, of course, that Otis O'Toole and Henry Lee Lucas were not paid by a satanic network. They were just run-of-the-mill, horrifying serial killers. But the real stories didn't seem to matter, not when compared to the lurid tales of a national satanic hypno-cult, Because the signs seemed like they were everywhere, and any poorly spray-painted pentagram or Hail Satan became definitive proof of a local Satanist coven, one that was certainly plugged into the national network, rumored to reach Illuminati levels. But of course, no evidence of such a network has ever been found. It is true, though, that to this day, members of the Church of Satan, as well as the newer Satanic Temple, do all sorts of things to antagonize fundamentalists while fighting for equality, from challenging Missouri's conservative abortion laws on the basis of their own religious beliefs to erecting a statue of the goat god Baphomet and demanding it be placed on legislative property next to a six-foot marble slab of the Ten Commandments, which they view as violating the separation of church and state. So, if you consider Satan to simply be an adversary, as the original translation suggests, then the organized Satanists were truly Satanic, as were the hippies and the metalheads and the beats and the flappers that came before, all of whom were called Satanic in their time. Countercultures, no matter how flawed, by necessity question the reality of the majority's belief structure, throwing serious sticks across their path at every step. It's almost a teenager's job to be a Satan, to be an adversary, to shake things up, to dream wildly and stupidly and beautifully, to chant or sing or scream a new future into being. Consistently, teenagers and young adults also invigorate the charge toward equality and acceptance as the older generation lags in their own idealism and eventually hardens up against societal change. And to these youth cultures, the adults become a kind of Satan, something coldly antique to fight against. It's through our adversary, through our opposite, that we attempt to define who we are, and maybe, more importantly, who we are not. Often, members of the aging overculture fight against the challenging of their own reality. They fight most intensely, it seems, to remain in a world where they don't have to consider varying beliefs, where they don't have to be challenged, A world that stays just the same or even goes back to how it was before, while the wayward youth sin their way stubbornly toward an ever freer world. Panics around the satanic cults of the 1980s were yet another sleight of hand, another psychic dumping ground for growing anger and anxiety about moral decay, the morality of the youth and the future of a country moving, somewhat steadily in the 1970s, toward a rationalist, sex-positive, feminist future. The demonically-possessed women of 70s horror, one a 12-year-old girl and the other a pregnant mother, are easy representations of the underlying anxieties that were simmering, anxieties that, as we have seen and will further see in Part 2, boiled over in the 1980s into an all-out culture war. Something important I've yet to mention is that alongside these panics over Satan's influence, a new movement was quietly growing, one that would alter the course of our country dramatically. These progressive societal changes around the rights of women and the changing landscape of sexuality inspired famous televangelist Jerry Falwell to challenge the previously held belief in Baptist circles that politics and religion should be kept separate. Upset by what he saw as the widespread destruction of the nuclear family, he launched the Moral Majority Movement in 1979 in order to mobilize Christian voters to vote on specifically Christian issues, gaining membership in the millions. The rise of the Moral Majority was running exactly parallel to these satanic panics, providing a sensational adversary that strengthened their cause all the more. With their support, Born-again actor Ronald Reagan would become the president of the United States in 1980, and the fundamentalist influence on the political right would be cemented for good. All these factors—rumors of organized Satanism, the rise of modern feminism, the supposed breakdown of the nuclear family, Roe v. Wade and the legalization of abortion, and the growing knowledge around the sexual abuse of children by sensational kidnapping cases discussed in our first episode on Stranger Danger— created a cultural pressure cooker that finally burst, culminating a hysterical decade with the longest and most expensive trial in US history, with daycare workers across the country accused of horrifying satanic ritual abuses of children, with police digging up abandoned lots and cemeteries all over the nation, searching for the supposed bodies of infant human sacrifices. On the surface, the adversary of the 1980s was certainly Satan and the members of his cults, as well as the countercultures he apparently controlled. But for part two, we'll look to the very first manifestation of the Dark Lord to uncover what these panics were really about. The serpent, the one who slithered into the Garden of Eden, and the original biblical adversary, the disobedient woman, the one who took the blame for the fall of man, and for all the ills that were to come. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com americanhysteria American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at Factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Please be aware that this episode talks about child sexual abuse. Also, you'll get a better picture of this panic as a whole if you listen to part one first. And I'd also recommend listening to our first episode on Stranger Danger 2. On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria.
1: The children were made to chew pieces of these
2: children's hearts. They dig up the caskets from the graveyards, and the children were made to lay in the remains whatever was in
1: the casket everything is attempted to be destroyed and killed in that child and in society everything is goodness almighty satan destroy those who love god
0: if we could do a deep dive into the subconscious of america If we could lie America down on an overpriced psychotherapist's chase lounge, I'd really want to ask America about the 1980s, about what, exactly, America remembers. In a Satan-obsessed nation where, according to one poll, 68% of people said they believed in the devil and 60% believed that devil worship was a serious problem, Two new characters, Stranger Danger's murderous pedophile and the Satanist, started to blur into a force literally hell-bent on depravity that reached unimaginable levels, or, more accurately, levels of depravity that could only come from the imagination. America created its own modern psychological archetype of evil, combining an ancient religious villain with a brand-new social boogeyman, and voila, the Satanic pedophile not to mention his or her network of cults, materialized from the ether. In Part 1 of Satanic Panic, we touched on the cultural anxieties that were growing through the 1970s as women began careers and left children for the first time in the hands of relative strangers. As the Moral Majority Movement pushed fundamentalism into politics, we saw how the seeds of satanic hysteria were sown through pop culture, sensational media, and religious hucksters, directing parents' attention to the possibility that the devil and his cults might be influencing their kids. For part two, I'll cover what's been known as satanic ritual abuse, the belief that this network of cults were also using daycare centers as fronts to physically, sexually, and emotionally abuse children in grotesque religious rituals. I'll attempt to understand how this could have happened, how, for a time, forces on the political left and right reunited in what has been called, time and time again, the Salem witch hunt of our modern era, including the longest and most expensive trial in U.S. history. If you haven't heard of this bewildering and relatively recent time in our culture's history, you're not alone. It almost seems as if we've collectively repressed this terrible event, But now, as these stories start to return in new forms, it's time to lie America down on that couch. It's time to close our eyes and remember. Only about 90 years ago, as the Great Depression hit in America, did the world of children transform into anything resembling what it is today. Child labor laws passed nationwide as desperate adults became unwilling to give away scarce jobs to 10-year-olds. No longer contributing to the economy, children began to occupy a sentimental, symbolic place in society, and with the influence of Romantic-era ideas about the spiritual innocence of children, adults created a new, special, and separate world for them. A world without any trace of sin, taming the predators of the old one, the lions, the tigers, and bears, into stuffed animals with large, loving eyes, hearkening back to a time before death, before pain, back to Eden itself, before the fall of man, before the perfect world was ruined by the single sin of Eve, seduced by Satan in the form of a serpent to destroy the rule of God. But come the 1970s, many mothers for the first time were rejecting that biblical origin story for good, leaving their roles as homemakers to start careers, some by choice and some out of a new economic necessity. And the massive turning over of children to daycare centers, as well as the new, more powerful position of women in society, caused our culture to simmer with an underlying anxiety. As Nixon vetoed a federal daycare bill designed to aid working mothers and alleviate the strain on the welfare system, the need for childcare only continued to grow and private daycare centers opened all over the country. Bolstered by the stories of the milk carton kids who'd been kidnapped by murderous pedophiles, a new, even more terrifying supervillain started to form in the fires of pop fundamentalism. One who would desecrate children's Eden of Innocence profoundly and terrify them into silence by sacrificing those most beloved animals right in front of their eyes. Because just like adults once wrote Children a Paradise, in the 1980s they would also write them a Hell
1: the local fundamentalist church, held an extraordinary service. There's been a lot of questions about, are there any witchcraft, occultism, Satan worshippers in the area? And the answer is obviously yes. The preacher asked his flock to protect themselves with their faith, but some chose a more down-to-earth method. Brother Blunt, I believe in the Lord, and I believe in you, but I'm still gonna carry my gun because I'm scared.
0: The work most often credited with sparking the satanic ritual abuse panic is another one of those evangelical hoax memoirs, much like Mike Warnke's The Satan Seller that we talked about in Part 1. This book was published in 1980 and was called Michelle Remembers, written by a woman named Michelle Smith and her psychiatrist, Dr. Lawrence Pazder. This book. How can I even describe This book. Michelle Remembers is like a Pentecostal fever dream made into an especially lurid Lifetime movie. Through 600 hours of hypnotherapy with Dr. Pastor, Michelle recovers an avalanche of repressed memories from her childhood of extreme ritual abuse by a satanic cult. The book alleges that her mother surrendered her to a satanic leader named Malachi, who, along with his cult, used six-year-old Michelle in an 81-day devil-summoning ritual called the Feast of the Beast. Michelle was covered in spiders, covered in the blood of dead fetuses that she'd watched being crucified, and in the blood of kittens she'd watched being slaughtered. She was physically, emotionally, sexually, and spiritually abused, made to have sex with snakes, and even had horns and a tail surgically fused to her body. But then... In a crescendo of glittering light, Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the Archangel Michael all show up and save Michelle from the chaotic, grindhouse horror, erasing all the memories of those terrible events, tucking them away in a corner of her mind so that she could rediscover them only when the time is right. Conveniently, they also remove all the scars of the abuse from her body, the scars from the horns and the tail, all the physical evidence magically dissolved. It may be shocking to us now, but this book blew up, with Michelle and Dr. Pazder touring the U.S. and appearing on all the most popular talk shows, eventually leaving their own spouses to get married to each other. The book was, of course, debunked several times throughout the 1980s, with interviews from siblings that Michelle claimed never existed, her father, and schoolmates that knew her as a quiet student during the times she claimed to be in the constant throes of a satanic cult. It was clear from the taped interviews that Dr. Pazder had fed, for the mentioned 600 hours, false information to a vulnerable patient under hypnosis. Those who've studied the tapes closer note the many similarities to the apparent West African cannibalistic religious rites that Pazder claimed to have witnessed while working abroad, and by all accounts, liked to bring up quite often. Recovered memory therapy has since been seriously questioned by scientists and psychologists alike, as it is extremely easy for therapists to help create false memories with suggestive techniques, even if they don't mean to. But the thorough debunking of Michelle Remembers and the techniques it involved hardly mattered to a freaked-out public. This book also had a very clear agenda— Written largely in the helpless voice of a child, Michelle is continuously abused by the female members of the cult, which she calls the mommies. The conclusion of the book then alludes, very unsubtly, that the real villain of the story is Michelle's mother, because it was her that originally abandoned Michelle to the cult. By extension, all women who put their children in the hands of strangers are suspect. There is a pointed call for the return to the moral nuclear family system, the only hope against this kind of organized abuse, and of course, a return to fundamentalism itself, as it was Mother Mary that appears magically to become the mommy that Michelle had been missing.
1: The author of a popular book on Satanism, Dr. Lawrence Pazdurt. One of their primary aims is to de- to destroy the belief system within a child, to make a child turn against what they believe in, in terms of who they are, of who God is, and to desecrate all manner of flesh all manner of church institution all manner of sign and symbol that a child could in any way be attached to
0: all of a sudden hypnotherapists all over were helping patients recover horrifying memories of satanic abuse michelle remembers was used to train social workers in conferences on child abuse all over the country never mind the magical claims of divine intervention And as these social workers returned from these trainings, a shocking number of new allegations of child sexual abuse began to surface and over time became more and more bizarre, more and more impossible, more and more like the outrageous stories of Michelle remembers. In August 1983, a woman living in an L.A. suburb named Judy Johnson told the local police that she believed her two-year-old son was being molested at his daycare center called the McMartin Preschool, specifically by a teacher named Ray Bucky, the grandson of Virginia McMartin, who owned the business. Judy was adamant, noted Matthew's red and irritated rectum. After interviewing Judy, the Manhattan Beach police sent letters to 200 current and former parents of McMartin, saying they had reason to believe that children were being used for pornography, molestation, and oral sex, based on the claims that Judy Johnson had made. And of course, the parents freaked out. Why wouldn't they? Very quickly, scores of parents got in touch with the police, saying their children had admitted to being touched inappropriately or photographed. The police began speaking with these children but had no special training in the handling of such a delicate situation, so they referred families to a place called the Children's Institute, where licensed social worker and psychotherapist Key McFarlane began interviewing the children with her personal therapy invention, anatomically correct dolls, complete with sexual organs. You know the ones where someone says, show us on the doll where he touched you. Key McFarland told investigators that the kids had accused not only Ray Bucky, but also his mother, 66-year-old Peggy Bucky, and his grandmother, Virginia, who was in her 80s at the time. They were all charged with sexual crimes against children based on these interviews, along with four other teachers from the daycare. Children's genitals were inspected by doctors who claimed to be able to spot tiny signs of molestation, and this was used as physical evidence during trial. But it wasn't just McMartin. Throughout the decade, ritual abuse cases were raging in Texas, New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Washington State, Florida, and North Carolina, among other places. And soon, the accusations took a turn into the extreme, into the bizarre. As Dr. Pasder and Michelle Smith were hired to spend time with the children and parents of McMartin, kids had started remembering rituals, black masses, dead animals, and baby blood— just like Michelle had once remembered. Here's a list of just a few of the allegations made from all over the country, often during official testimony at trial. Babies, dogs, and cats were drowned and dismembered and boiled and eaten. Children were forced to eat feces, drink urine and defecate on the Bible, and then forced to lie naked in the shape of a pentagram. They were forced to sit in a kiddie pool full of baby-eating sharks. Tiger kittens were sacrificed in cemeteries. Giraffes and elephants were cut open. A horse was slaughtered in the middle of a playroom. A parrot was trained to peck at children's genitals. Someone cut the arm off a gorilla at a local zoo. Workers dressed as pumpkins shot children in the arms and legs with bullets. Kids were forced to carry around the bones of exhumed corpses, and passersby were dismembered with a chainsaw. Teachers flew through the air in witch capes. Children were flushed down toilets into secret underground tunnels. They were flown around in hot air balloons to secret locations and sold to politicians or flown in airplanes to Mexico and abused by Mexican soldiers. At one point during the McMartin trial, Chuck Norris was identified as one of the abusers, circled in red crayon by a little boy for the entire jury to see.
2: Jimmy talks about having a gun held to his head about being shown a skeleton about having to touch the skeleton he has drawn pictures of a child being sacrificed uh he's talked about animal sacrifices he's disclosed molestation
1: when the children started talking they started talking about robes and candles they described an episcopal church truth about satanism is they truly do use blood and they mix it with urine. And then they also use the real meat, the real flesh. This is what makes Satanism true. And this is what 1,200 molested kids in the city of Manhattan Beach have told the sheriff's department.
0: The lines between entirely different professions, between religion and science, were all blurring together. Christian psychotherapy and exorcism were recommended by clinical therapists to their patients. Cops were playing the role of child psychologists. Social workers were becoming criminal investigators. A poll of California social workers found that 45 percent believed in a national conspiracy or network of multi-generational perpetrators where babies, children and adults are sexually assaulted, physically mutilated or killed. For activists in the Rising Victims' Rights Movement, the most important cultural shift that needed to happen was for victims of sexual assault to be believed and for justice to be brought against their abusers. But the dominant culture, and especially those in the moral majority, weren't interested in the more credible accusations of women. So when these fundamentalist groups started to believe children who had claimed sexual abuse, it felt like a victory. This is where we start to see a strange allegiance form But there was a serious problem. Only those abuses that fit into a fundamentalist narrative, with the abusers being satanic cult members in daycare centers and the victims, helpless children who'd been abandoned by their newly working mothers, were taken as real. Victims' rights advocates had long fought to expose the silent problems in the nuclear family dynamic to face the fact that the majority of sexual crimes against children are committed by male family members, often fathers, but trashing the reps of the dignified spiritual leaders of that nuclear household wouldn't have fit into their pro-family stance. Satanic child abusers, however, also called for an increase in the influence of fundamentalism in politics as the evil transcended what could be stopped with just an earthly criminal justice system. And so, in one of the most bizarre partnerships ever formed, feminists and fundamentalists cheered the maxim, We Believe the Children. And no matter what the children said, they were believed. As the media and tabloid talk shows latched on to the growing numbers of stories with Iron Jaws, with Oprah and Geraldo running specials on satanic ritual abuse with record numbers of viewers, with guests like Mike Warnke and Dr. Pasder and Michelle Smith as their alleged experts, as well as glassy-eyed guests who'd allegedly been raised in brutal satanic cults but had just remembered it. A legal task force was formed, and Dr. Pazder was spending, by his own account, a third of his time teaching law enforcement about satanic ritual abuse. Police in various small towns began digging up abandoned lots, looking for the supposed corpses of hundreds of infant sacrifices. Children had started telling stories of women impregnated in factory form just to give birth to infants that were immediately slaughtered as sacrifices and thrown into a mass grave. The Law Enforcement Task Force's Guide to Satanic Ritual Abuse reads as follows. It's gross, and I'm sorry I'm even reading it, but it feels important to know the official story that was being told and also being used to train police. Sexual orgies among cult members always involve the balance of pleasure with pain to serve Satan. Rituals involving the insertion of eyeballs into the vagina or rectum symbolize that demons are inside the child always watching. Male and female children and adults are married to Satan, who is considered bisexual at various ages. Staged birthing of bad babies, dead snakes, rats, and objects are seemingly pulled from between the legs of small girls who are told they are giving birth to bad rotten things. As the pre-trial began to grow more and more lurid, with kids making more and more sensational accusations of satanic rituals, the prosecution struggled to adjust to an extremely expensive and public trial that was spinning out of their control. And so, after three years, they decided to only try Ray and his mother Peggy. In order to deal with the wilder claims, the DA told the jury that Ray had staged the more bizarre situations for just this very reason, to undermine the future testimony of the children. The prosecution said, in an act of pretty incredible forethought, that Ray had beat a horse to death in the classroom and successfully hid all evidence of it just so that kids would later tell the story and be disbelieved. Toward the end of the trial, the jury finally got to see those tapes of Key McFarlane interviewing the children. A TV was rolled into the court, a VHS tape pushed into its VCR. In each video clip, Key McFarlane appeared with a different child, the array of anatomically correct dolls and toys in front of them. She begins by asking questions while pulling the clothes off the dolls, showing the kids their private parts. She's gentle at first, as all the children deny being touched or having their picture taken, as they distractedly play with the toys, barely paying attention to Key's questions. But she's working off the correct assumption that sometimes kids are threatened to keep abuse secret. She then invites children to talk with her in the voices of different dolls and toys, making it clear that this is a game of imagination. Then her questions become a little more leading as she starts to provide these lurid details herself, trying to get children to agree that these things happened. As they still deny it, she becomes, well, coercive. She tells them she already knows that these things happened, that all the other kids had said so, and that she knows that this kid is involved. She makes it clear the answers that she wants and the answers that she doesn't want, the disdain in her voice obvious, as the children continue to say that nothing happened. Then she begins bordering on outright abusive. She tells kids to show their anger by slamming the doll's head on the counter, showing them how in a shocking display of force. The children that will not admit to the abuse are called stupid, dummies, said to have bad memories, or be lying, all through the sweet, put-on voices of various toys. Those that finally did agree to what Key was saying, agreed to being abused, were praised brightly and rewarded by Key and their parents alike, who showered them with attention, believing that the very worst had happened. And so the kids did what the adults had made clear they wanted. They lied and then they kept lying. It seemed that the wilder the story got, the more praise and attention they were given. Not only that, they got to go home. The facts of the case also began to tell a different story. In every single trial, not a shred of true physical evidence, not a drop of blood or bodily fluids, not a single pornographic photograph was ever found. Many of the children accusing Ray of abuse had not even attended the school at the same time that he worked there. Toward the end of the trial, Judy Johnson, the original accuser in the McMartin case, was found dead in her home from alcohol poisoning, and it was revealed that she, to the knowledge of the prosecution, was a diagnosed and unmedicated paranoid schizophrenic who had told law enforcement stranger and stranger stories of satanic abuse and pedophile networks all throughout the investigation, information that was withheld from the defense. The jury came back on January 18, 1990, and after a trial lasting six long years, after $15 million of taxpayer money, they found Ray and Peggy not guilty on 52 counts, and they were deadlocked on the other 13. They were free to go, bankrupt by legal fees, free to pass through the screaming parents, the children, some now grown into teenagers, and the sea of rabid reporters. Ray would be sent back to court for the remaining charges, but they would be dismissed after a three-month trial. Key McFarlane was exposed as a relative fraud, never holding the psychotherapy degrees that she had claimed. It was also revealed that she had began a romantic relationship early on with one of the biggest tabloid reporters who produced endless exclusives on the McMartin case over its six-year run.
2: I never did anything. My son didn't do anything nor my mother, or my daughter, or any of the teachers. I just can't imagine ever molesting a child.
1: I'm not guilty, Your Honor.
0: 190 people
2: nationwide
0: were charged with the ritual abuse of children, many of them women. But unlike the McMartins, 83 people were convicted in total. Several died in prison. After the McMartin trial, skeptics and believers battled it out, many claiming that the trial had been a miscarriage of justice for the child victims, or perhaps even a conspiracy of silence. But then, in 1992, FBI agent Kenneth Lanning shared his extensive work in a report on satanic ritual abuse, declaring that the threat just wasn't credible. And so, by the mid-90s, the debunking of satanic ritual abuse had become the hot new story, with Geraldo apologizing for his role in the hysteria and those who still believed becoming the subjects of ridicule. And then, just as quickly as it came, the whole panic seemed to disappear from the consciousness of the public, but it didn't disappear for the scores of people directly affected. Years passed, appeals failed, and hope diminished as those in prison continued to deny their guilt. And then, 10 years later, 20 years later, the medical experts began to admit that their molestation detection methods had since been proven bogus, and many of the grown children began to recant their testimonies. They said they'd been coerced and bullied into the accusations right from the beginning by social workers and police, and even by their own, mostly well-meaning, completely terrified parents. At these new trials, the prosecution that once believed everything these children had said on principle bashed them brutally and called them liars, but what they would gain from recanting never became clear. As the convictions were overturned, many of the grown children wept at the sight of those they had accused being released from prison all those years later. In 2005, one of the main accusers wrote an open letter to the McMartin family that was published in L.A. Weekly. He told of coercive techniques, of the confusion, of the guilt and the fear, and about how his own mother would never believe him as he sobbed and tried to tell her the real truth throughout the trial. He ended with a simple statement. I would love to look at the defendants from the McMartin preschool and tell them I'm sorry. After the letter was published, the McMartin family, however, refused to accept his apology. They refused to accept his apology, they said, because he did not owe them one. It was the adults, the prosecutors and cops and psychotherapists and social workers and so-called experts that they wanted an apology from. Dr. Pazder had died the year before of a heart attack after admitting that perhaps the horrific things detailed in his book, his book that trained psychotherapists and social workers and police, his book that sparked a nationwide moral panic with severe effects for all involved, had not happened to his patient-turned-wife, but whether it was true, he said, was far less important than the fact that Michelle believed it. To be clear, the maxim, we believe the children, is a good message because it's true that kids almost never come forward with false accusations of abuse and false accusations of sexual assault are very rare in general. Methods of interviewing possible child victims have since been completely revised by child psychologists to avoid those types of leading questions. But in the 1980s, all the focus on the confused testimonies of these coerced little kids derailed a rising victims' rights movement that was full of survivors with less sensational accusations that did not include satanic sacrifices, but often did include male members of the sacred nuclear family that the moral majority was so obsessed with venerating. The problem was not that the children were being believed, but that since the very beginning, they were not. The kids of the Satanic Panic Trials were not corrupted by pedophile Satanists. They were corrupted by the symbolic fears of anxious adults in a chaotic culture war. And whether or not any actual sexual abuse occurred to any of these kids will likely never be known because of the way the panic unfolded. Because of the way everyone was swept away in the story of it all and what it meant. A perfect, terrifying metaphor for a rapidly changing country. And so it starts to make sense why some of these satanic child sex ring themes are coming back now, as the number of women graduating from college is surpassing the number of men in a post-MeToo world where victims of sexual assault are encouraged to share their stories and seek accountability of their abusers.
2: A North Carolina man was arrested Sunday in Washington, D.C. after a shooting that he says was motivated by an Internet conspiracy theory. The Pizzagate rumor came from fringe elements of social media and was pushed during the campaign by right-wing websites like Breitbart, which is run by key Trump advisor Steve Bannon. It has also been pushed by the son of President-elect Donald Trump's new national security director, Mike Flynn. On Sunday after the incident, Michael Flynn Jr. tweeted, quote, until Pizzagate proven to be false, it will remain
0: a story. In 2016, as the first woman made a viable run for president, reports burned across social media that Hillary Clinton and campaign chairman John Podesta, known online as hashtag John Molesta, were running a satanic child sex ring out of a DC pizza parlor named Comet Ping Pong. The alleged coded evidence was found, where else, but in Clinton's infamous leaked emails. One such email was sent to John Podesta about spirit cooking, a controversial performance art piece involving menstrual blood that was taken as a real satanic ritual participated in secretly by the powerful elite, aka the Illuminati. These conspiracy theories were shared 1.4 million times by more than a quarter of a million accounts in their first weeks of life. Russian trolls began creating fake Facebook news ads citing satanic ritual abuse of children by Clinton, and they spread all across the internet. Just a few days later, Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election. A month later, a vigilante conspiracy theorist entered Comet Pizza searching for the child victims with an AR-15, opening fire into a restaurant full of patrons, including children. Miraculously, no one was injured. The newest rumor circulating is known as Drip, which surprisingly is not a new drug on Riverdale. According to Believers, it refers to a snuff film produced for the dark web showing Hillary Clinton and longtime aide Huma Abedin sexually assaulting and murdering an underage girl, ritualistically filleting the girl's face and then wearing it like a mask. Just like those Depression-era adults once created the innocent Eden-like world of the modern child with its lush green gardens and crayon blue skies, with its plush predators and its uncomplicated purity, adults in the 1980s created its perfect opposite, a brutal godless hellscape of grinding torture featuring the slaughters of those beloved animals of kittens and puppies snakes slithering into their helpless bodies while children continue to occupy that cultural symbol of ultimate innocence it seems that hillary clinton is now fulfilling the same role the daycare workers once did a psychological symbol of the fear of the increasing power of women Satanic ritual abuse accusations call back to a common interpretation of our most influential cultural origin story, Eve's pact with the Satanic snake of original sin and God's subsequent punishment of all women to exist only as wives and mothers and to be subservient to men. It's a convenient story, isn't it? So many of our stories are just that, convenient convenient to reinforce the power structures that be, or to vent our anxieties symbolically. Michelle remembers, and the concept of satanic ritual abuse, are examples of these stories. It seems that every time women want for more, they become partnered with Satan, the challenger, the adversary to the social order, who's bound to slither up out of hell any time they step out of line next time on the show. 2016 saw a rash of phantom clown sightings rock the nation, with children and adults reporting clowns lurking, chasing, offering candy, and brandishing weapons. But it wasn't the first time. I'll take you into the uncanny valley and into the world of true crime to explore why the clown has become the monster that it is today. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith and produced and edited by Clear Kamo Studios. Please leave us a review and follow us on social media. You can find those links in the show notes. Have a great week.
2: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium?